Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. if we needed to, but uh, this helps. Uh, So Romans chapter 8, if you're familiar with the book of Romans, who wrote the book of Romans? Paul, right? Now, we need to talk about Paul real quick in order to understand uh, his writings. Yes, God wrote his word, but he used human authors, and he wrote through them, right? So God, he wrote his word through humans, and he allowed some of their aspects of their character to come through in their writings. So in order to understand Romans really well, it helps us to understand the human author uh, who God used to write it. And Paul was the human author. Now, something about Paul that's very important to know is this. Paul was a very, very, very well-educated man in his day. Uh, He had been brought up in the teachings of Judaism, and he even had some outside influences, and he knew uh, he actually had some, like, uh, Greek influences, I believe, and he had some, like, really cool education if you study his life out. He was a very, very well-educated man. He was actually very well put together, too. Uh, He was very logical, systematic, and he works problems with a system and a very, very put-together plan. Okay, that's Paul. How many of y'all can connect with that? Anybody in here very systematic in how you think? Um, I am very systematic. My wife is not. So when we approach a problem, she wants to talk about how does it make me feel. When I approach a problem, I want to approach it in what do I think about the problem, right? Does anybody connect with this this dichotomy here? Uh, In relationships, uh, it can be the guy or the girl, but sometimes, typically, in a relationship, there is the two sides that you approach the problem with. Well, Paul is Mr. Logic. And so he approaches the book of Romans no differently. He's going to start out, and he's going to be very systematic in how he works through his writings. So if you open up the book of Romans and you go to chapters 1 through chapter 3, Paul is going to have one theme for those three chapters, and it's this. Everyone alive has sinned. Now, we need to ask ourselves, why does he start off a book with that? That's kind of a downer, right? Like, that would be like me getting up this morning being like, hey, everybody, all of y'all are sinners. Are we on the same page, right? That doesn't, like, land right, right? That's kind of an odd way to open. The reason he does this is because Paul had a very close relationship and a unique relationship with this church, but the church was made up of two very different groups of people. Church at Rome had people who had come to know Jesus who were Jews, and then people who had come to know Jesus who were not Jews, who were Gentiles. So what they were doing is they were fighting each other. One group was like, hey, God saved us from all of this, and he gave us the gospel that people who weren't Jews were like, hey, God saved us from all of this stuff in our past, and he gave us what you all should have gotten in the first place, so we received more grace than you. We're better than you. And the Jews were over here like, hey, look, we've been following this God of the Bible that you just met, and he sent Jesus to us. And yeah, some of the people that we know, they didn't accept him, but we did. And so we actually got more grace than you, and we're better off than you. So Paul takes the first three chapters, and in chapter one, he's like, hey, if you're a Gentile, you're a sinner. Chapter two, hey, if you're a Jew, you're a sinner. Chapter three, hey, if you're a human, you're a sinner. And he works his, the, the problem like this because Paul wants to open up then in chapters 4 through 5 and give them the cure for the problem of sin. And the same cure applies to whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. And he wants them to see it doesn't matter who you are. It matters what Jesus has done in you. And that's when he presents this concept that we would refer to in theological terms as justification by faith, right? Which simply means 
We can get our sins forgiven if we place our faith in what Jesus did for us. And Paul presents it really simply. He says, hey, those of you who are Jews who think that somehow it worked differently under the law, your father Abraham, who you all love so much and he's so revered, he got his sins forgiven because he placed his faith in God. And he presents this whole concept that in order to know Jesus, in order to have a relationship with the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, it happens when we receive God's grace, his gift, his forgiveness of our sins, when we receive it by just approaching him in humble faith, believing in what he's done for us. So then Paul switches again, okay? Are you, getting the, are you getting the idea? He likes themes and he sticks together, but when he switches, it's a hard switch. He now does another hard switch in chapter six and he's gonna go into a different area now. Not just how you get to know Jesus, but what happens once you know Jesus. What happens as a result of you starting a relationship with God? And chapter six and seven and eight, he's gonna present this theme that we refer to in theological terms as sanctification, right? Which is simply a big fancy way of saying, now that I know Jesus, how can I become more like him, right? How can I be sanctified? How can I be cleansed? How can I be made more like the one whom I follow? And that's the whole theme of the three chapters of Romans 6, 7, and 8. And so in Romans 6, Paul attacks it this way, and he says, hey, you died in what, to yourself. Like, you no longer have desires for yourself. So Christ died for you. When you came to know him, you died to what you wanted, and now you're alive. You have a new life in what Jesus Christ has provided for you. And then in chapter 7, he's going to talk about some struggles even that he had and the tension that is there between the flesh that lives inside of me and the fact that I now have a relationship with God, the new way of walking in the Spirit of God. And he presents this tension in Romans chapter 7. And then we, become, then we come to Romans chapter 8, which is our text for today. We're going to bounce around in a few different areas of it and work through a lot of it. But the whole concept here is this. Life in the Spirit, the Spirit of God. Life in the Spirit changes everything. Or we should say it this way, because maybe that's not a reality in your life right now. Life in the Spirit should change everything. When we come to know God and have a relationship with him, and, there, and Paul would put it this way, when that happens, you are in the spirit. You have a relationship with God. You, you're a part of it now. When that happens, everything should change. Not just one thing, not just coming to church on Sunday. No, everything in life should change. And so this morning, we're going to see from this passage, we're going to see three truths about my new life in Jesus, and then we're going to see some responsibilities as a result of those truths, okay? Uh, so this morning, we're going to look at, I'm alive in Christ, now what? And we want to answer that question of now what? Let's pray really quickly, and then we'll dive into the Word of God. Lord, we love you so much. I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for your Word. God, I ask that you would speak to us through your word. I ask that you would remind us of who we need to be in Christ. And I ask that you would uh, convict us where we need convicting, encourage us where we need encouraging. And Lord, just give us um, truth this week as we leave here to hold on to as we follow you each and every day. We love you so much. And in Jesus' name, amen. 
Now, I don't know about you, but um, garage sales and yard sales and like auctions, I find very intriguing. Is anybody like that where you kind of like those types of things? Uh, some people are, some people hate them, right? You're just like, I want to go to the store and buy something new so that I can depend on it. Others of us though are like, I'd really like to get a deal on something and pay like a tenth of what it's worth and then get 10 years out of it, right? But you're taking a chance when you do that. Well, there's a story about a uh, couple um, and they went to a garage sale. This is back, I believe, in about 2007. And uh, they lived in New York and they went to a garage sale and they bought a like fine china bowl. You ever like go over to somebody's house and they have those china cabinets? Maybe you have one in your house, um, but they're like really fancy and it has like the fine china. Well, they went and they bought this cool looking china bowl uh, thing and it looked great. And they took it home and they uh, set it on their mantle and it sat there, it was like a centerpiece and it looked cool and everything was great and family life went on. Well, in 2013, um, they had some friends over to their house and the friends saw the bowl sitting there and they said, hey, we think that you should get the bowl checked out because it looks like something that we saw in like this magazine or something and we think you should get it checked out, just take a chance on it. So they went and got it checked out and it ended up that this bowl was from the Northern Song Dynasty from China. So it was actually like fine China from China. Like how cool is that, right? And uh, so they found out that it could be up to like a thousand years old, which is really incredible. And they went and they decided that they were going to put it up for auction. Now, when they bought this bowl at the garage sale, they bought it for $3, okay, three bucks. You can't get much for $3 anymore, right? Uh, you can't even get a gallon of gas anymore. Candy bar, you're struggling. You might be able to get a soda, depending on like, uh, if it's on sale or not, right? But uh, for $3, they got this. Well, they put it up for auction, and it, they thought the auction house is Sotheby's Auction House, and they told them, they said, hey, it'll sell for around 200,000 bucks. You'll get a great return on your investment. It'll be awesome, three bucks to 200,000. That's the best investment you could ever make. Everything's great. Well, they ended up selling it to a dealer in London, and the dealer in London paid almost $2 million for this piece of fine china. Now, all of you all who are garage sale people are like, man, I'm going to be going to garage sales this week, right? Because I'm going to find the next bowl to sell and make a bunch of money, right? So I just gave you a little story of hope there. So go have fun at your garage sales this week, all right? But the point of that story is this. I believe many of us in our Christian lives have something that is worth more than $2 million. Knowing Jesus, having the hope of Jesus Christ in us, being in the spirit, being forgiven of our sin, it's worth more than $2 million. It's worth eternal value. However, how many of us treat it like it's a $3 bowl that we picked up from a garage sale? What I mean by that is how many of us treat it carelessly? Just approach it just normal, you know, it's Christian life, great, cool, so glad I'm a Christian, I'll go to church this week, awesome, maybe I'll even go to like church two times this week, or maybe I'll serve this week, I mean that's like we're really amping it up now, right, we're not just going to serve church, we're serving now, so like we're moving up, 
Um, I'll give and I'll, I'll be kind to somebody this week, right? Now, now we're really getting crazy, right? We're just going like overboard now. But how many of us, like, I make light of that, but how many of us actually sometimes in our lives live like that? I know I do at times. <laughs> we treat something that has immense and undefinable eternal value with such little care. And I believe sometimes it's because we don't look to Scripture and see the truths about what our new life in Christ actually means. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation in them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made them free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The first result of my new life in Christ, the first truth about my new life in Christ is this. In Christ, there is no more condemnation. There's no condemnation. We're presented here with the idea of the law and with Jesus coming to fulfill the law. And and basically, it's a culmination of the rest of Scripture. Like, we don't have enough time to go back and work all the way from Genesis to Romans in two minutes. But hopefully, you're familiar enough with the story that you understand that God created a perfect world with perfect people to have a perfect relationship with him. But it didn't work out, right? Mankind disobeyed God's commands, his law. So you work out through scripture and God actually gives a written law then and mankind continues to disobey it time and time and time again. Because God's standard of perfection and righteousness is different than us. It's, it's above us. But we consistently as humans missed that mark. And so what had to happen was Jesus came and he fulfilled what we couldn't do. He lived in our shoes, right? When we share the gospel with people, we always want to talk about, well, you know, Jesus died for your sins and was buried and rose again. But that's not all of it. He actually came to live in your shoes before he died in your place. Because a perfect person had to meet the requirements of the law before they could die for all of mankind. And that's what Jesus did. And because of that, these four verses tell us, there is therefore now no condemnation in Jesus Christ. What is condemnation? What, What are we talking about? This is the idea of a penalty. I think of it as the penalty for a crime or an action. I think of it as a judge, right? you're in court and you've done something that you shouldn't have (laughs) and the judge is standing sitting there he's not going to be standing he's going to be sitting there and he hears all the sides and the cases and at the very end if everything goes correctly and there's a conviction he's going to hand down a penalty correct a sentence and that person if it if it's me I will be standing there condemned for my crimes. I'll be bearing the penalty for my actions. In Christ, there's therefore now no penalty, no condemnation for my sins against Almighty God. 
That's a truth worth celebrating each and every day of my life as a Christian. That's a truth that has eternal value. That's a truth that's, a lot more, that's worth a lot more than $3 or $2 million. It is an eternally valuable truth. I do not have to sit in condemnation each and every day. I do not have to condemn myself. I do not have to live under the condemnation of others. Why? Because if I know Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for my sin. But there's a second truth, and that's found in verses 9 through 12, where Paul says this, but ye or you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But it's the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. Paul presents us with this concept here, not just that there's no more condemnation in Christ, there's no more domination by sin in my life. I don't have to give in to what I used to do. The Spirit brings new life. Verse 9, but you're not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. If you come to Jesus Christ, the Spirit dwells in you. Therefore, you don't have to do what you want to do. The body is dead because of sin. Verse 10 says, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. You have a new life, and you can access a new way of living through what Jesus has done for you. The Spirit brings new life. Paul would put it this way over in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, right? Nevertheless, I, not, I don't live, yet not I, but it's Christ that lives in me. Now, if we're not careful, we can just read over that and be like, okay, so I'm, I have to crucify myself daily, right? I'm crucified, right? I have to go back to the well. But when we read that, we read it in our English, which is great, but that whole term comes from actually one original word that the way it was used, it was used in a tense that literally means it was an action in the past that happened that carries forward to the future. It's the perfect tense. It's, it's hard to explain because we don't have it in our language, right? But in Greek, it was used in the perfect tense, and it literally has this idea when Christ died, somehow I took a part of that crucifixion, and I'm not quite sure how it worked, right? Because it happened. But when that happened, and when I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, I accessed this power from that event that carries through to this day and absolutely radically changes my life. And I'm dead to who I used to be, and now I have new life in Jesus Christ. I do not have to be dominated by sin any longer in my life. There's no condemnation, there's no domination by sin in my life. You ever heard somebody say this? I heard this quite a bit when I was working in a local church setting. And if you use this term, I'm not picking on you, okay? Because I don't know you very well. So I don't know if you use this term. But you ever heard somebody say this term? The devil made me do it, right? Now, according to the Bible, that is absolutely theologically incorrect and inaccurate if you're a Christian. Because according to Romans, 
you and I don't have to be dominated by our sins. So as a Christian, the devil didn't make me do it. I willingly chose to do it. You can maybe argue that before salvation. Yeah, the flesh made me do it. Great, cool. The devil made me do it, cool. But now that I know Jesus, actually, it's all amped up now, right? The responsibility is amped up because I have new life in Jesus. So the devil didn't make me do anything. I willingly chose to disobey God when I did that sin, which makes it even more kind of disgusting and disturbing when I sin, right? Do you see, do you see what Paul's trying to get across here? We don't have to do it any longer. In fact, we shouldn't do it any longer. We ought to live in the power of the Spirit, the new life that we have in Christ. Why? Because verse 12, I am a debtor to God. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. But now I'm actually a debtor to who? God, Christ, what he's done in me. He's given me everything so that I've exchanged the authority of sin in my life that controlled me for what? The authority of Christ in my life, to follow a new master and a new way. This is why Jesus approached his disciples with what phrase? Not, hey, pray to me. Hey, do this. Hey, go to church. He said, what? Follow me. It's an exchange of masters, an exchange of authority, an exchange of a way of life. I do not have to be dominated by sin when I am in the spirit of God, when I know Jesus Christ and have a relationship with God. There's no condemnation for sin. There's no domination by sin. But thirdly, there's no separation from God. Verse 14 and 15 says this, For as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That means if you're in here and... You're a lady, you have the same exact status as in those days when an elder son would have quite a bit more status in the family than everyone else. Doesn't matter whether you're a boy, girl, Jew, or Gentile, you have the exact same status in the eyes of God, and that is that you have the highest status. There's no separation. Verse 15 says this, for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. It's a term of endearment, and it's in a, a way of approaching a father as a child and asking to be lifted up into their arms and to be held close to them. He presents us this idea and this concept that if you know Jesus Everything's changing. You've got a whole brand new relationship, a whole brand new family, and God is there as your father. He continues this theme later in the chapter in verse 35 in more famous verses where he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor pre things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth. We've kind of gotten into like math and physics here, right? nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's whole point here, and what God's trying to get across to us through Paul is this. When we come to Jesus and we begin a relationship with him, we never have to experience separation. We never have to experience what it's like to be alone. 
We never have to experience what it's like to have an imperfect heavenly father. We never have to experience what it's like to be without hope. Why? Because hope is always right there. Hope is always a step away. God promises in his word, draw nigh to me and I will draw nigh to you. Literally, the concept is take one step and I will meet you where you are. There is no separation from God. I put it this way about salvation and being close to him. How many of you all find it that whenever you sin against God, there's this thing in the back of your brain that's like, well, I can't go to God because I just disobeyed him, right? Have you ever thought that, right? It's always like in the back of your brain because like, oh man, I, I did something wrong. I can't approach him. But that's wrong because God says, come to me anyway. Access the grace that I've given you. Access the forgiveness that I've given you. I put it this way. If you didn't do what you couldn't do, so if you didn't save yourself, we couldn't do it, right? So if you didn't do what you couldn't do, how do you expect to undo what you couldn't do when you didn't do it? I'll say it once more. If you didn't do what you couldn't do, you didn't save yourself, how do you expect to undo what you couldn't do when you didn't do it? It's impossible. There is no way for you to unsave yourself if you didn't save yourself in the first place. There's no separation from him. We are adopted and we have a perfect father. When I was growing up, I was, al- I was always afraid of two things, right? As a child, I was afraid of two things. I was afraid of the dark and being alone. Now, oddly enough, I grew up and in high school, I decided to take up the hobby of hunting, which you go into the woods in the dark and you're alone. So I don't know what I was doing there. That was a poor choice. But when I was a child, I really was afraid of the dark and being alone. And in fact, like if I was alone in a store and like couldn't find my parents, it would just like, that would just undo me as like a young child. It was just the end of it. And like, might as well just lock me away because I I don't know why, but I hated being alone. Uh, when I got older, I found out that there was like fancy terms for it, right? Like people call it separation anxiety and they like go, go all the way down the road with it. But I didn't know that when I was a kid. I just knew I didn't want to be separated from my parents because I liked the security and the safety of being with family and being with someone that I knew. We can call it whatever we want, but in our Christian lives, I think a lot of us struggle with feeling alone. God, where are you? Go read the Psalms. David struggled with some severe separation anxiety with God. He he literally would be like, God, where are you? I don't see you anywhere around here. Are you here? But what did he do? He consistently ran to him. Because why? Because God would eventually show himself in a mighty powerful way and remind David of who he was. As children of God, we do not have to be separated from him. We can run to him with open arms. We are not separated. We are not dominated by sin, and we are not condemned for our sin. Great. Awesome. We can leave here. We just got three truths from Scripture. Great. We're encouraged. Awesome. But with every truth from Scripture and encouragement from Scripture comes responsibility in our Christian lives. Every truth has a responsibility. Great knowledge and great power gives great 
responsibility. It's no different with Scripture and with God. And so this morning, we see in this same chapter that Paul is actually going to give a few specific responsibilities of my new life in Christ. The three truths are great. The three results of my new life in Christ, they're great. No domination by sin, no condemnation for sin, no separation from Christ. Great. But where does the rubber meet the road? What are the responsibilities of my new life in Christ? Well, the first responsibility is this, that I must focus specifically. Verses 5 through 8. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the laws of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. This idea of carnally minded and spiritually minded, it's this idea that I must have a new frame of mind, a new mindset, if you will. I grew up playing um, sports. I loved baseball growing up. I was naturally good at baseball. Just, it was fun. I just could flow and it was good. But then I started to like hit a growth spurt and everybody was like, oh, you're tall. You should play basketball, right? So I switched and I started playing basketball, which was a mistake because then I lost all the fun that I had in baseball. But anyway, I digress. Um, So in basketball, we had a undersized team just to put it frankly, right? Uh, we had an undersized team. I played forward, which if that tells you anything, I'm severely undersized for forward. Uh, I, we would go up against guys who were 6'6", six, 6'8", six, six, and uh, it was, it was uh, exciting. We'll just put it like that, okay? And uh, so we had a lot of fun, though, and we did win some games. We, we, uh, we weren't terrible, but we weren't great. But what we learned was if we went into a game with the mindset of, we're small, we aren't going to win, we can't play these guys. Guess how we played? Terrible. Now, I remember one game we went into, and we went up against a school where they had, like, recruited people, like, internationally to come play at this school, and, like, they were really good, okay? Like, we had no business playing them. We should never have played them. It was a terrible idea. But we decided that day that we were going to go in, and we were just going to play hard. We're going to give it everything we got, and we're going to leave it all on the court. Now, we ended up losing that game, okay? (laughs) Have no fear. We did lose. But at the end of the first half, we were only down by four, five points. Now, that game, we had a different mindset, and it showed up on the court. If we had played with that other mindset that game, we would have been down by 20, 30, who knows how many. My point is, mindset matters a lot in sports, but mindset matters a whole lot in life. Where's your mindset at? Paul says here, as a Christian, your new life in Christ, your responsibility is to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. So, things of the Spirit would not be the depressing situation around me that's going on in my life, my school, my neighborhood. Yes, address those things, but to focus specifically on those things, that's not things of the spirit, I don't think. 
Focusing on things of the Spirit is not me indulging myself in things that distract me from the Spirit. Focusing on the things of the Spirit is not me focusing on things that don't just distract me, but that clearly violate the Spirit or the way that the Bible says I should be living. I must focus specifically on what the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. I must set my mind on the things of God and His Word. The Spirit brings a new way of thinking, and my responsibility is to continuously set my mind and my purpose on the Spirit, on the things of God and the things of His Word. Focus specifically, but secondly, purge consistently. Verse 13, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you live through the spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body. Ye or you shall live. Now, we don't really go around using the word mortify, right? Like when was the last time that you were like, hey, I'm going to go out and mortify that building, right? And you're like, wait, what? (laughs) Um, It's just weird, right? Like we don't really use that term. But it simply means to destroy or to render ineffective. To destroy or render extinct. To make to die. And the idea here is, in Christ, I experienced a death to my desires, right? When I came to know him, that's Romans 6. I I experienced what it means to have a new life in him. But there's going to be things that pop up in my life that are against what God wants me to do. You ever experienced this? You ever just been sitting there before and like a thought pops into your head that is just completely like definitely against scripture and just like weird and you're just like, why is that thought in my brain? Like, like let's just, am I the only one? Because like, I'll just be sitting there sometimes and it's just like, wait, what? Why are we even thinking about that? Like, why is that thought even a potential right now to even think about? Well, the same thing is true. If I, if I give credence to that in my brain, it can turn into an action or a thought pattern, right? So sin can pop up, but it's not necessarily that I'm having to go back and re-crucify myself and re-meet Jesus, but I sure do need to starve that thought or that action, right? I need to render it extinct. I need to take away the time and the resources that go to it, and I need to mortify it. I need to purge consistently. There are things around me that are trying to vie for my attention to distract me from my new life in Christ, but I must subdue them. I must seek to purge these things from my life consistently. Focus specifically on the Spirit and the things of God. Purge the things that do not bring him honor out of my life consistently. But thirdly, the third responsibility I have in my new life in Christ is that I must consider patiently. Consider patiently. Verse 18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, this reckon here is not southern reckon, right? I reckon we'll go to the store today and get some gas and some food and some hardware. I reckon, right? I grew up saying that. I grew up in a family that said that. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is not speaking in Southern English here, okay? The term reckon that he is using is actually a very different term. It's, a, it's more of a financial term. 
Um, think about it this way. Uh, if you have a mortgage on a house for, let's be realistic, $200,000. That's probably not very realistic nowadays. But um, say you have a $200,000 mortgage, right? You're paying on your mortgage day after day, day after day, day after day, month after month, month after month, year after year. You finally get so close, and then finally that mortgage gets paid off. Now, what should happen is you should get like the, the deed, right, to your house, your land, and you should get that, and that becomes yours. But say that you continue paying on your mortgage. Now, first of all, that's just dumb, okay? So, like, there's no other way around it. That's just not smart. However, what you would not be doing is you would not be considering or reckoning your debt to be paid. When you stop paying on that house, you accept the deed. In that moment, you are reckoning and considering your debt to be paid. Make sense? It's a financial term. So when Paul uses it here, he says, for I reckon I consider what? That the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I love the Bible because it never states that we're not going to suffer. Instead, it states that the suffering is worth it because the future we have is so much better. In fact, Paul later here, when he talks about being separated and things, he actually talks about a lot of nasty things that can happen in life. And he says, all that's going to happen. And then he quotes the prophet. He says, but it's okay because here's why. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. I must focus specifically. I must purge consistently, but I must consider patiently. What must I consider? The God I serve. The glory that awaits me. My present trial should point me to the Savior, not sending, send me running from him. Paul doesn't minimize our trials, but he maximizes the God that we serve. So whatever's happening in your life at this exact moment, however terrible, poor the situation is, Paul says, let us reckon, let us consider that these sufferings are worth the glory that awaits us when we can know Christ. Also, let's consider it worth knowing that God right here and right now in the middle of those sufferings. Because whether I know him or I don't, suffering's going to happen. So I would much rather know the God of creation and suffer knowing him than suffer without him as someone who is hopeless. So I must consider patiently, but f finally, the last, res the last responsibility is simple. I must follow humbly. It's simple in stating it, but it's not simple in doing it. Verse 26 through 28 says this, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Yes, you heard that right. When you don't know what to pray, God prays for you with himself. God the Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, you are being prayed for. Crazy, isn't it? 
Verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Or you could read it, who are the called according to his purpose. Now, it's a very famous verse, but typically we only talk about the very first part. All things work together for good, period, right? Put it on a shirt, sell a million of them. Awesome. It's not what the verse says, though. The verse says, all things work together for good for or to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The key here is those who are called according to his purpose, those who have a relationship with him, and those who are actively following him love God. And it doesn't say that all things are working together for good at this exact moment. It says all things will work together for good. The problem is we don't know when the will work together for good happens, (laughs) and we don't get to determine it. But it's a promise that as I love God and have a relationship with him, he will continuously work behind the scenes to bring about good things for me now. And if it's not so much now, there is a future that awaits me. And I must consider patiently that the sufferings of this present life are worth the glory that awaits me, is what he would have just said six verses earlier. And so I'm, can, I'm presented with these responsibilities of focusing specifically, purging consistently, considering patiently, and following after God humbly. So where does the rubber meet the road in your life? I'll tell a quick story. I to- actually told this at the student prayer advance, so some of you might have heard this. A couple of your students might have heard this story, so bear with me. Uh, but um, my wife and I, we got married about seven and a half years ago now. Uh, it'll be eight years in December. And uh, my wife and I got married. Uh, we met in college, got married, moved back out here, and shortly thereafter started working at a church. And uh, life was great. And then we um, got to a point in our life where it was like, hey, let's start trying to have kids, right? Because that's just what seems to be the thing to do, right? Because <laughs> you get married and then you actually have kids sometime. So we were like, let's try and have kids. So we tried for a little while and it just was not happening. It was not working for us. And uh, we kept trying to have kids. No avail was not working. So we decided we were going to go through some treatments to have kids at that time, some minor treatments and see if that would help. And so we started to go through that and it just was not working well. Um, Also mixed into this, like, Every one of my friends was popping out babies left and right, and it just was a weird time in life, okay? So, I remember, uh, we, I, I kind of was just in a spot where I was like, okay, God, this is kind of messed up, right? And I remember I was just struggling for a summer to submit to God's will and to understand what he was doing, and it just was a tough summer. And uh, I remember we got some bad news from like the treatments and it just was not going well. And finally, I just got to a place in my life where it's like, God, it's not, not fair that everybody else gets to have a kid 
And we're out here serving you on the backside of a mountain at a place that I didn't ask to come to, that you put us at, and things aren't working out, right? So I decided to have a little pity party, because that's always great. I decided to be like Jonah, and let's have a little pity party on the backside of a mountain, right? And so, um, so it didn't work out too well. I remember I was at a church uploading a video uh, for our services. This was back during COVID. We would upload our Sunday services because we couldn't meet at that time. And uh, so we were uploading, and I was in this church auditorium. It wasn't this one, but it was one across town where internet was uh, good and stuff. And I was there, and I was in their auditorium just walking around, and I was, like, praying and just, like, shaking my fist at the ceiling because that signifies something to me, even though I know God's not in the ceiling um, because he's everywhere, right? But it just makes sense, right? And so uh, I was just going at it, and God just spoke to me through his spirit and just said, like, what's the deal? Um, you, you said you wanted to follow me. So between then and now, what's changed? So God has a way of just like cutting right to the heart of the matter, right? And I was like, well, I mean, my circumstances changed. And he's like, no, like what changed about me? Okay, well, nothing. Let's just get it over with. Uh (laughs) You already know the answer. Nothing changed, right? And then the the follow-up question that the Spirit just prodded my heart with was like, okay, so if nothing changed, what's the deal? Like, where's the issue at? Because I never promised you that your circumstances were going to be great. What I promised you is I was going to walk through you and beside you in your circumstances. So that was kind of a downer, right? That was a damper on my pity party. And so my pity party kind of changed that day. And that day I I experienced just the faith becoming real in my life. You know, you know how like you have experiences in life where the faith that you placed in Jesus, it becomes really real personally through trials. Well, we kept going, right? We kept on going in our um, treatments and they didn't work. So we took a break. Well, then last year, um, we were given an opportunity to go to a different doctor and clinic, and they gave us some more hope and some ideas that we should try. And so we decided to go through treatments again, except this time we decided to up the ante, and we're doing like the big boy treatments now, right? We're not doing the, the lower stuff anymore. We're entering into a different sphere of treatment. So we started that last fall, and... I remember we were going through parts of it and we really amped up in the spring and in the spring was when we were doing um, specifically um, retrievals. We're doing IVF and they were going in and they were getting the eggs to have an embryo, right? And so I remember uh, this was our first round of all this and I was preaching at a church across town in a revival that week and they had done it and we were waiting news and I decided I was going to pray and fast. And I didn't really have any prompting. It was just the spirit was like, hey, pray and fast. And I was like, okay, cool. So I started praying and fasting, which is not a bad thing to do, by by the way. Uh, Highly recommend. uh, If God puts in your heart to pray and fast, go for it, right? However, somewhere along the way that week, and I'm not quite sure why or how, I got more focused on the fact that I was praying and fasting, not what the praying and fasting was for. Does that make sense? Um, I got off track somewhere that week and distracted by the fact that I was the one doing the praying and fasting 
not who I was supposed to be praying and fasting for. And that's where the danger can come, right? There's nothing wrong with praying and fasting. There's nothing wrong with begging God incessantly and interceding on your behalf or someone else's behalf. The Bible is full of scripture passages that say to do that. But that week I got distracted. And I remember at the end of that week, we got some bad news after that first round of uh, treatments. And I remember I was just crushed, like just absolutely plastered against the wall, crushed, just like, can't even pick myself up. Like, what is happening right now, God? You are absolutely out of line. You know, you ever have those conversations with God where you're just like, God, you're out, you're out of line. <laughs> you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And I remember we were, we, my wife and I were driving in the car and she just started like just peppering me with questions. And I, I thought she was going to be the one that I, I was going to have to be asking questions to. And here she is. She's just powering through and just peppering me with questions. And she finally asked me this question. She said, Stephen, are you more focused on the hand of God and what he can give you? Or are you more focused on the face of God and what he wants you to experience? And I was like, okay, well, <laughs> why don't we just uh, be super annoying and ask us the question that nobody wants to be asked and answer but in that moment, I re-experienced the same feelings and the same process and the same, the same exact issues as a few years before. And it was this. I needed to focus specifically on God and who he is. Not on my situation or what I want or what I expect from him that I'm not necessarily getting. I needed to purge consistently out of my life the poor attitude, the selfish attitude, and the prideful attitude that I allowed to enter into my life in that period. I needed to then consider patiently the glory that awaits me, the God who I serve, compared to the present suffering of that moment. And the missed expectations and the questions and the hurt, okay, but what about this? I need to do, realign that. And ultimately, I needed to decide to submit myself to the God of the universe and follow him humbly. Now, all of that sounds great, but how many of you all know when, like, the rubber meets the road practically in life, it can be a drag, right? To have to humble yourself before God and say, no, God, whatever you want to do, I'm willing to be on board with. It can be a drag. <laughs> but it doesn't matter how it feels because why? The Bible says it's correct and I've staked my entire life on following after Jesus because I'm convinced, I'm persuaded that nothing can separate me from his love and he is the source of all joy, life, and power. So who cares if it's a drag? <laughs> I need to do it anyway. So in that moment in the car and over the next week after that moment, I had to put into practice the same message that I had preached numerous times. And I got to actually do it now. Focus, purge, consider, follow. Now, I don't know what your life looks like, but I'm sure right now in your life, there's situations, situation, whatever, 
And I'm sure that this week you're going to be encountered with plenty of things that you can apply those four responsibilities in. I'm also convinced this week that there's going to be things that arise that you're going to be able to look back and focus on the fact that you don't have, you're not condemned in Christ, you're not dominated by your sin, and you're not separated from his love. So this week, whatever confronts you, remember who you are in Christ and remember your responsibilities ahead. Right now in this moment, you've been confronted with these responsibilities and you might be sitting there like, man, I really need to like follow humbly and I haven't been, right? Or man, I really need to focus my mind on him and not the things around me. Which my response would be, exactly. (laughs) So this week, today, right now, let's apply Romans chapter eight and these truths that we've learned, however it needs to be implied in your life. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to close us in prayer. And while I'm praying, I'm going to give a few moments of silence for you to apply in your heart, in prayer, right where you're at, whatever you need to from Romans 8. If it's simply saying, God, I'm sorry, and listing out a laundry list of ways that you have not been following him, go for it. If it's simply you reaching out to him and saying, God, I don't really understand what you're doing, but I'm choosing to follow you and submit to you right now. Go for it. If it's you simply sitting there in silence and telling God, you know my heart, and I don't even know what to pray right now, go for it. Because Paul just said, he'll step in and he'll meet you right where you are. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much, and I thank you for the opportunity to be with this congregation this morning. I thank you for your... Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.